This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 202 brought to you in association with Smart and the listedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Aman Bezad, founder and managing partner of Royal Park Partners, who are a leading player in European fintech corporate finance, to talk about, well, corporate finance for fintech. Sometimes you guys really get to see the depth of planning that goes into some of these shows. Royal Park, who were founded in 2019, have been involved in over 30 mergers, acquisitions, and capital raises for clients, including Thought Machine, Habito, TransferGo, and Coinworks, so they may know a little bit about the topic. Okay, so as all that seems very clear to me, let me avoid intolerable periphrasis and dive right into it. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Aman. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. So this is a first in terms of two pod recordings in a row in in London. London's cool and grey. Looks a bit dirty and grubby still. I think a bit busier than when I came in about two or three weeks ago for the last one. I wonder whether there'll be three in a row. And we had a a very interesting preamble chat about uh, civilization, cultures and being creative, creating your own microcosm here and what's going on in the macrocosm. As part of that, in terms of an intro chit-chat, one of the fascinating things in terms of your experience of cultures in terms of the world, before you made your own culture in Royal Park Partners, as well as a a business and the interaction between the two, was that off the top of my head, you have a relatively unique educational background, shall we say, or younger life. Yeah, sure. Um, So my father was uh, used to work for the World Bank, which was an experience where we uh, we were on site and lived across um, about nine African countries, I think it was. I was six months old, born in London, and then bundled off to the Sudan, South Sudan today, Sudan proper at the time. Proceeded to be homeschooled for the first sort of 10 odd, 11 odd years of my life. Was that because lots of people were shooting each other at the time in Sudan? <laughs> yeah, there, weren't, there wasn't necessarily the number of international schools that, that you have now in many of these countries. And it was, a, it was really a mix. It was obviously my, my, driven a lot by my mother in terms of the, the numeracy and the, and the English. But actually then spending a lot of time basically playing with street kids and learning street languages. So at one stage, once upon a time, I was a fluent speaker of Chichiro, which is language in, uh, in Malawi. Um, I used to speak Juba Arabic, which is a very African dialect of, uh, of Arabic, which sounds incredibly funny when I, when I say it. Uh, and, and you look at me when I, when I speak in that, la- when that, that dialect and that intonation. And that really that's what gave me a flavor for, um, for emerging markets and working, in, in, um, working with and working in uh, developing in fast-growing, fast-evolving countries. If you sit here on a grey day in London and you think of your childhood, what sort of image comes to mind? I mean, obviously, my childhood, uh, having gone not much further than this country, I think of rain. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I, I think of some uh, sunny summers, which shows that uh, over time the, uh, the weaker memories fade and uh, rosy-tinted spectacles appear. And my memories are always of, uh, of massive gardens that we used to have and, uh, and wild trees that always had all kinds of fruits, mulberry bushes that were massive, mulberries the size of fists growing, growing quite wildly, passion fruit vines uh, growing on our houses. Again, not, nothing, none of this was sort of tended to. It was just very fertile soil, perfect conditions for growth, and growing up and playing with my friends in a very outdoorsy uh, environment. I see. So what led you from playing in an outdoorsy environment with all that exotic foliage and people shooting Kalashnikovs over <laughs> your head to um, where you are today, which is physically in uh, Russell Square? 
Yeah, so, so long story, uh, I'll try and make it as brief as possible. I then came back to the UK when I was about uh, sort of 13 years old, went to boarding school. That must have been a bit of a shock, mustn't it? It's, it sounds like a bit like people who are in the Raj and their kids are sort of grew up with hammers and, and, and playing with peacocks and tigers and all this kind of stuff. And then one day they're in some brutal English boarding school, which is freezing cold with sort of terrible masters. It was definitely an adjustment, definitely an adjustment. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely say that. Character forming. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. And, and sort of sleeping in a dormitory with, uh, with 12 other boys, that was an experience as well. Yes, that's for another podcast, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, graduated from the University College of London, studied economics. Actually, my first job out of university was in New York. I started working at a time uh, at a deal settlement platform called Marco Polo Networks. I didn't know it at the time, but that was a fintech business. They were focused on uh, being able to facilitate trading with emerging markets at a speed and pace which, which EM uh, markets were just not able to previously accommodate. So, you know, in the old days, there'd be a phone broker picking up the phone to somebody in India wanting to buy an Indian stock, for example. They'd put forward a trade. You wouldn't have any idea what price it happened at, whether it actually happened at all, etc. So we were basically working on a, a technology system that could enable that to happen. Business didn't really go anywhere. Dad got me on the phone and said, you need to come back to the UK and get a real job. So uh, I joined KPMG, became a chartered accountant, then uh, wanted to uh, get back into a sort of a faster moving, fast-paced environment, joined Citigroup, spent about four years there. Ended up doing a lot of deals in what was called diversified financial services there, which was basically a a kind of a code word for what later became fintech. It was basically the part of the coverage ecosystem that neither the financial services team nor the technology teams wanted to touch and realized that there was a space there to to look at. It included card companies, some insurance, MGAs, a lot of different kinds of businesses. Being at Citigroup, being at a big bank, it was clearly not a focus area. Decided to join a boutique that was focused on it, worked at that boutique for about six years, did about 20, 30-odd deals during that time. Then set up uh, the London office for a well-known financial technology advisory boutique, and then subsequently decided to, uh, to set up my own shop with, uh, with a group of friends. And as I mentioned in the intro, you've been going for about five years now. You've done an impressive number of deals. I mean, how many people are you? So we're coming up to 20 now, actually. So, so a pretty, pretty nice team. Two main offices, London and, uh, and New York, and then a satellite office in Shanghai. Ah, well, again, there's a, a bit of a tangent there, given I've been reading some Talking of KPMG, some very amusing accounts by a chap at KPMG who was put into the um, quarantine camps for some time. And unlike me, who would have uh, moaned big time about it, he seemed to see the amusing part about the whole thing. It was a very droll uh, post, but uh, yes, it's a bit uh, challenging in Shanghai at the moment. So that's a pretty impressive creation of a business in short order. So maybe moving on now to the topic of corporate finance per se in fintech, we can give a little bit of a background. You've indicated in your comments there about how your experience of, of this sort of thing emerging from the mist. At one point, there is no figure in the mist, and then it comes a bit clearer and clearer and clearer. And then suddenly you're talking to somebody, and he's talking about corporate finance in fintech. And we all know what these particular terms are. I assume that in the States, which obviously had the whole dot-com boom and tech boom and all that kind of stuff, that for quite some time, certainly on the West Coast, you know, corporate finance in tech has been a major, massive, massive thing for quite some time. And much more recently in London in terms of fintech, I'm very pleased to be able to talk about it today because it shows to me that fintech really is maturing if it's getting to be, need the same kind of parts of financial services as other businesses. What is the kind of context, perhaps just particularly a European perspective? I mean, for the sake of argument, if we go back 10 years, 2012, I would assume there's bugger all going on because the likes of Rate Setter and Funding Circle are just being founded. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's, there's not, no M&As and as for funding, they were probably still on their A's and B's and don't have the sort of mega millions or whatever it costs to hire real professionals to do it from. Yeah, interesting. So I'd say that really in Europe, we followed a slightly different path. Corporate finance and fintech has, has, has always been there, although it wasn't sort of called fintech at the time. It was 
sort of what I would call FinTech 1.0, which was software that was being sold into uh, any financial institution, a bank, an, insur an insurance business, or an asset manager. And it was just viewed as another vertical that sat within the broader technology bucket. So those deals were being done, and those were businesses that were predominantly sort of capital markets, technology businesses focused on execution of trades, order management, execution management, or indeed wealth management, asset management, software companies. There wasn't sort of that purist approach of saying, well, actually, this is a fintech business. That kind of morphed, I would say, as we started seeing VC money finally pour into the European ecosystem and leading to what I would call fintech 2.0 where you actually had not just the provision of services, but actually core financial services being provided by, by businesses. That VC money really came, came into Europe, I would say probably from around about 2010 onwards. I think what's, what's important to note in terms of the European context is that actually no VC fund in Europe made money prior to 2017. It was a poorly performing asset class across the board if you, if you look at the statistics. And so that money was really few and far between. It was founders, bootstrap businesses, and they were really only interested in you explaining to them who should we sell our company to in the US. That has dramatically changed with the volume of capital that's gone into the market, where now you've got such a, a voracious risk appetite on the part of founders and capital to fuel that risk appetite, which has led to more and more advisory services being available to, uh, to those kinds of founders, to those kinds of funds. And I guess to that point, in the early days, it was really a founder beating the streets with a lawyer, sort of a commercial lawyer helping him or her sort through terms and figure out how agreements would work. And then I would probably say since 2012, 2015 onwards, it started being a real thing where actually you, you realize this is a sphere in itself. It requires very strong sectorial focus, vertical specialism, and needs to be looked at in that regard. So in terms of the ecosystem, you mentioned lawyers there and you mentioned before that you're uh, accountants and for the small SME in any sector, if you need some advice on these areas and you're relatively small, you will tend to ask your accountant or ask your lawyer. However, as, as you grow and tech and the fintech, as you said, there's lots of capital flowing into it. So it accelerates the whole life cycle, whether it's boom or bust, get there faster, as it were. What would you say, just from the perspective of a listener who may be a, a founder or part of a fintech, what kind of point is it in terms of, I don't know, capital or revenues or number of people or something like that where you should start saying to yourself ah well actually the fact i just ask my accounting partner odd questions now and then or the fact that i speak to my lawyer occasionally actually it's about time i started considering grown-ups like royal park partners to come in and advise us because they do one thing and one thing only they do corporate finance they don't do sort of all the law or all the accounting -y stuff sure so i'd say it'd really be where you start needing to tap institutional capital professional VC funds that have professional capital behind them, so insurance funds, pension funds sitting behind their structures. When you're sort of going and run and doing seed funding rounds with high net worth individuals, EIS funds, VCT funds, that's really something that's probably best done solo. You're typically looking at raising from sort of whatever, a couple of hundred K all the way up to sort of 15, 20 odd million now uh, in terms of how, how big some of these, these uh, earlier stage funds go. It's really when you're sort of raising north of 25-odd million sterling, I'd say, that's really the point at which you, you start needing to tap serious pools of capital. And that's where you need the relationships and the ability to understand how to structure and present your business, your story, having material available, and sort of funneling that interest into something that represents a process of, uh, of getting to an end result, which is a, a successful fundraise or a trade sale. Okay, so that's looking at it from the parameters of scale, as it were, to simplify. I mean, I guess the other parameter is that the other way around is what are the kind of typical transaction sizes that a boutique firm like yours does. If I, for example, as is bound to happen, receive a mega million dollar 
offer for the London fintech podcast empire, it might be useful in my mind to know that you know your minimum fee is about 10 million and you go up to 100 million, or your minimum fee is 10 shillings and sixpence and, and, and you go up to sort of a, a couple of grand. So from that perspective. Sure. So it's usually done on a, on a percentage basis, as is the case with, with most boutique advisory houses. You usually have a retainer fee, which is more about a commitment from both sides that you're going to be dedicating sufficient resources to the project and that the client will, will also be taking you seriously as opposed to viewing you as a free option. And the second is a success fee, which would typically range anything sort of in and around 3% of, of the amount of capital that you raise. If it's a trade sale, you're selling the business typically around 2%, give or take. So for the sake of argument, we're talking sort of six or seven figure fees? Yeah, at a minimum six. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just talk a little bit about corporate finance and fintech per se. And just to put that into context, let's divide it into two topics. One, which is similarities to quotes, normal corporate finance. That's not the right phrase, but you know what I mean. Big bank corporate finance stuff that I would have recognised decades ago. And then after we looked at similarities, we can look at differences. So, you know, what's different about doing corporate finance in fintech compared to just doing, I don't know, FTSE 100 corporate finance for the banks or something like that. So in terms of skill sets in corporate finance, I'm not sure whether this is a similarity or a difference actually, but if I think back to corporate finance, I saw ClimeWatch, their main skill is being able to get really high bonuses from the rest <laughs> of the organisation's profits. And I saw the other main skill as being very good at politically at promoting themselves and getting into positions of power. Now, <laughs> they may have had some other skills as well. I mean, occasionally they talked about deals, but uh, that was only the sort of, uh, you know, what they did when they've done all the others. So I'd say that the, well, certainly our firm is the antithesis of that. I think firstly, if you do our similarities, at the end of the day, the, the services are fairly similar. There's a capital raising product, which is helping a company raise capital in the market for primary or secondary funds, money into a business or helping to get some investors out. There's the IPO product, which is taking somebody public and public markets advisory. And then there's the M&A product, which is helping people sell themselves if they're looking to, uh, to exit. So those kind of three core products are, are similar the world over. Everywhere you go, you'll, you'll, get, you'll get the same. The approach to those products and how you implement them is dramatically different, though. So the big bank, traditional corporate finance is much more process driven. It's about shoving everybody through a sausage machine and you only have three kinds. You either have, a, as I said, an M&A, a capital markets or an IPO sausage machine. And out the other end, either you get a sausage or you get something that's a bit deformed. If it's a bit deformed, you just move on. In the fintech world, and specifically, I guess, in the, more in the boutique world, but particularly when it comes to boutique banking for fintechs, it's a very different application. It's not so much about process, it's much more sectorial driven. And by that, I mean, within the fintech world, you have so many sub-verticals in tech, payments, asset management, wealth management, capital markets technology. In each of those verticals, you need to understand the careful, the nuances of exactly what's happening with each of the different players in the space. Who's investing in which companies, who's buying which companies, who's going public and who's not. And the fintech market as a whole is so fast moving that you need to have your finger on the pulse at all times. And you're not taking people through a processed approach where you start off with one of those products and you end with one of those products. You're taking an approach where you want to give more holistic advisory to your client and help them figure out what the right path is ultimately keeping as many of their options open for as long as possible as the, uh, the shareholders and stakeholders in the business evolve their thinking around their ownership position, their desire to continue to run the company, etc. So it's a very different, more nuanced approach to, uh, uh, to banking and, uh, and advisory. Yes, I mean, when I asked the dualistic question in terms of similarities and differences, as always, that's just something you might scribble on the whiteboard because in reality, things are rarely squares or circles. And in terms of how I saw corporate finance changing over my time, in merchant banking. There was quite a shift within it from 
relationship-driven corporate finance to transaction-driven corporate finance. And that was very much related to Americanization and Glass-Steagall and, and a bunch of stuff like that. And let's just say traditional corporate finance, pre-Big Bang, so pre-85 or whenever it was, uh, pretty much forever was relationship-driven. And I, w- I would say we're taking it back that way. Well, that's what I was thinking when I was hearing you. So by relationship-driven, although in a different way, basically what it meant was that the sort of the corporate finances were very well connected, or in Clarewalt Benson's case, mostly <laughs> quite a lot of Etonians who would go and have lunch with another Etonian buddy of theirs that they still talked to from school as opposed to the ones they hated from school. And they'd chat and, and have good lunches and, you know, just general advice and being a sort of friend of the business would be the way. And uh, in actually quite a Japanese way as well, you would never do anything as crass as actually ask for business or fees or anything like that. And then you'd do enough of that and the, the, the market was sufficiently not over-competitive, although it was competitive enough, that every now and then your, your buddy at whatever British Petroleum, for the sake of argument, or British Aerospace, that was a big client of Clamont's, will give you a call and, and, and say, oh, hello, old boy, actually, we're thinking of doing something. Do you mind possibly helping us? Oh, well, we, can, we can help you. So I caricature it, but not that much, actually. It was an entirely relationship-driven world with much less rigorous profit targets on it, which meant that it could be, at best, really an advisory business where you're giving the client the right advice, including don't do the business. Okay, let's take that to the other extreme. Then obviously it became sort of a thing where there's profit targets in mega, mega bank, and you've got to make your sort of profit target for this year, and you end up pushing transactions in almost a capital market way. So that was the process that I saw. But listening to you, as you noticed, you seem, and I think it's much easier for boutiques to do this perhaps, because nobody's going to beat you with a stick if you haven't made a 25% ROI or whatever this year, or return on capital or whatever return on expenses or some random number from the finance department. It sounds like that you're going back to the kind of more old-schooly way, which is that actually you like having relationships with a bunch of clients and you like helping them out. And hopefully good businesses have good clients. And if you've got good clients, they're going to remember and not just rip you off for all those years of advice and you know for, for a nominal fee. Uh, when they want to do a transaction, because, of course, you've also built up, going back to more traditional parts of the world, whether it's the Middle East or or Africa, a more relationship-driven perspective, where it's a relationship rather than the transaction, which is still predominant. Yeah, so 100% agree with that. It's definitely the relationship, but the relationship is also based on two things. One is massive levels of competence when it comes to executing and showing that you've, you've done a great job for that particular client in the past. And the second thing is bringing to bear all of the knowledge and experience that you've gained working in that sector, in that sub-vertical, in that part of the market, and bringing that skill and expertise to the company that you're serving. So, for example, many of our clients will give us a call and say, you know, well, can you guys come in and have a look at our, um, our the way in which we report our pipeline? We're not very, very happy in terms of how we're reporting it. And so, obviously, outside of any deal construct, we're getting involved with our clients and helping them talk through what is best practice that we see and what is not best practice and areas for improvement. We always say, uh, you know, it's, it's such a shame when our clients give us a call three months ahead of wanting to do a transaction and say, let's get something done now. When the most value we can bring to that table, to that table is you know, talking to them 12 months in advance where we can bring all our skills and expertise. So you're absolutely right there. And one other data point, you're absolutely right, the market is, is incredibly competitive now. But, interesting factoid, only about 20% of the mandates that, we, that we've done uh, have we actually had to pitch for. It's largely still a very relationship-driven industry, as long as you're proving that you've got the skills and expertise in your team to get a great deal done for your clients and you work with them well ahead of time, there is really no more magic formula than that. The other point about traditional corporate finance, and actually this also applies to modern corporate finance, is uh, 
the tendency to, to work about 24 hours a day <laughs> when deals are on. I don't know whether that's the case in the boutique or whether you all clock off at five o'clock. So definitely don't clock off at five o'clock. I think you have to be cognizant of the fact that there's an evolving profile of people that come and come into the workplace and they have different needs, wants, requirements. And you constantly have to be aware of the, the preferences, the desires of your staff and how they want to work. You can't have a single diktat for how your staff will engage with you at the workplace. And as long as you, you engender flexibility and, res- and mutual respect on both sides, you can actually let everybody be very happy with the output that's being produced by the staff and the servicing of clients, as well as letting people have a balanced social life and a balanced approach to how they live their lives. Because ultimately, the killer of every corporate finance business is churn, is the loss of good quality employees. A high churn rate in, a, in, a, in any organization will lead to a sort of a fifth, probably a 50% reduction in, uh, in your productivity. So your key thing is to retain your, your, your staff, to hold on to the, the, uh, the good staff by looking after them, giving them the, giving them the flexibility of, of how they should be engaging, letting them have a productive life where they think they can actually build a career over a longer term, and you'll get the best out of those staff. It's not about what the big banks do, which is just offering higher and higher salaries. People don't understand that, that the youth that's coming into the workplace is not coin-operated. You don't just uh, sort of insert a, a pound coin in the top of their head and expect a pound of work to come out the other end. Yes, and going back to how corporate finance has changed over the decades, as you quite rightly say, it became sort of the Faustian pact of, yes, look, I know you've worked 25 hours for the last seven days in a row, but here's more money, kind of thing. But interestingly, before that, it was what one might call faith-based or religious-based. And I remember a senior director of corporate finance, when approached about the uh, lunacy of working in uh, corporate finance or all hours and, uh, and all this kind of stuff, said that it's a bit like being in the army. If you ever think about it, you'll leave. So the best thing is, <laughs> is not to think about it and just to, to carry on. And in terms of uh, changes in the marketplace, because talking to you makes me feel that actually a lot of what you're saying is as much something else about how corporate finance itself has changed. And from a Chinese perspective, everything is cyclical. It goes in, in cycles rather than in straight lines. One of the interesting changes I saw, and I remember a buddy of mine who was head of uh, financial services, corporate finance at Schroeder's back in the 90s, saying that the impact of the greater competition and the more international banks and corporate finance coming to London was that there were no more deals than there ever were, but rather than spending 25% of his time marketing, he was having to spend 75% of his time marketing, as was every other corporate finance person in the banking sector, etc., etc. And the net effect of all of that was that transaction fees had just gone through the roof for all clients, because ironically, more competition had pushed up prices because every senior corporate financer was spending three times the amount of time marketing that they did before, which I thought was a very interesting dynamic. And the challenge there, I I don't know how it's evolved over the last 10, 15 years so much, but the challenge there is, is that if these corporate finance things were standalone, then the market would eventually clear by eventually a bunch of them going bust and then the fees resetting to a proper market level. However, if you're just a relatively small, even if high politically profile part of Megabank. Megabank can subsidise any amount of sort of craziness for ages and, and therefore Megaco corporate finance transaction fees can be pretty absurd. So how do you see that element of the marketplace going in terms of how much time is required on marketing and almost a failure of market? As I say, I, I saw the example where greater competition led to higher fees, which is not, going back to your economics background, probably what the sort of Ladybird book 1A of, of, of markets and competition said. Yeah, there's a lot, lot to unpack there. I think the, the first observation that I have is you're absolutely right in terms of the 3x on marketing. When I used to work at, uh, at Bulge Bracket Bank, a well-known Bulge Bracket Bank, the senior MDs would be entirely focused on, on marketing. And that to me was a bit of a tragedy because if they're spending three times more 
time marketing. They're spending three times less time giving their expertise on advising their clients. And you're inevitably kicked to a more junior person who doesn't have the experience. And then you're in a situation where actually it didn't matter which bank you appointed because you got the same junior guy at whichever bank you appointed and the outcome was, was the same. And so you, you don't end up getting all of that experience, all that knowledge and, and the best outcomes for your, uh, for your business. In terms of fees in themselves, look, look I think fees have, um, uh, have continued to tick upwards and, and, and the fee pool has continued to grow as a result of the fact that fundamentally there's so much capital coming to the market and there's so many transactions being done that uh, there's sort of a bit of a feeding, feeding frenzy when it comes to collecting capital on the part of companies and therefore all of the advisors that sit around them as well. But what I would say in terms of that, that sort of continuous tick upwards is the fact that it's an incredibly competitive job market at the moment. You know, I would say during the 90s uh, and, and sort of early noughties, probably through the noughties, the preeminent place where the smartest minds would go would be into the investment banking world out of university and out of MBA school, because that was the place where they felt they could candidly earn the most money. Now you're having to compete against technology businesses, fintech businesses, all manner of other kinds of uh, employer that will offer different kinds of wealth, be it more time for yourself uh, to do personal projects, be it equity in their businesses, etc. And so just because of the, by virtue of the fact that the competitive dynamic is so strong now, it's having to force uh, a lot of banks to dramatically up their salaries and up their pay scale, and that's being reflected in the fees that, they're, that they, uh, that they in, in inevitably charge. Right. Well, that's very interesting to hear. Everything is always changing, and I guess just musing over what will actually reset the market is that as and when corporate finance fees in general or in fintech get that much greater to the alternative, which is, I don't know, for the sake of argument, DIY or, you know, or get KPMG or, or, or whatever, um, then that would be some downwards pressure. I think that, again, just finishing off, but the most absurd fees I saw being maintained were around M&A, simply because the board will, will vote for it. Uh, you know, it's the board's life, it's the board's job, you know, the CEO thinks, oh, God, I'm out of here, I'm not getting a good deal. You know, he'll chuck any amount of company's money at it. So I think that's the one where the market is further away. Capital raising is obviously something which is... Um, more fungible. I mean, just, maybe just sort of t- touching on that before we, we wrap up with the future of how you see this. Talking to the boardroom table, because it's the board that needs to decide on all this, even if it goes to some shareholder vote um, uh, or whatever. We've got a notable example of um, a dissident elite member, Mr. Musk, right now. By the way, there's a really good thing, if you haven't seen it, and all this has haven't seen it, on Amazon Prime at the moment uh, about uh, Elon Musk. It's only one hour, but rather more things than I'd um, imagined. Obviously, the Twitter board there had sort of different views over different times. So one of the challenges, just wrapping up on, on corporate finance skill sets, sort of behind the scenes, all the, all the stuff that's actually necessary to be good at this kind of thing, which people might not imagine from a transactional perspective, going back to relationships, the more yin side, as it were, to the yang. A reasonable men, using the word men in the old school way, meaning humans, of course, a reasonable men or women may differ. And unreasonable men and women may certainly differ. And when you're coming into, shall we say, a board, you're going to have a bunch of people who are literally pointing in different directions. You know, the founder may be pointing over there. The VC may be pointing over there. You've got all sorts of conflicts and challenges. And obviously, there's a whole art, and I'm sure you could write a book on the topic. But just very briefly, from a um, listener's perspective, what would you want to say at the sort of high level about dealing with these different motivations of different, well, not stakeholders, shareholders, let's just be blunt, the shareholders who've got different perspectives? Because these things can get extremely challenging. Yeah, so I think the first thing to note is that you don't need to solve every problem from the first meeting and you don't need to understand every agenda from the first meeting. The key is once a board has made a decision to head in a direction, 
the key is that you just get the, the engine moving. Now, you may go in a variety of different directions, and I think this comes back to the point I was making on which product you end up going down, whether it's an M&A process-driven product or a capital-raising product or an IPO product. The key is that you start preparing and you start those conversations, however small those initial steps are, to start being able to smoke out what people's true motivations are. And, and that evolves during the course of a process. You know, people's funds perform badly or perform very strongly, or founders may come into money during the course of a process. A lot of different things happen. A major competitor may get acquired and suddenly there's a huge competitive threat with your client that, uh, that they're very nervous about. So it's just, it's just about being fleet-footed in terms of those interactions, being pragmatic and being able to recognize what are the problems you can solve, what are the problems you can't solve. And for the problems that you can't solve, what are the elements that need to be in place for you to come to a conclusion? You, know, you can talk in, uh, in abstract around the fact that a certain fund needs to get X return. But at the end of the day, if you show them a piece of paper that says this is the amount of money that's going to be debited into your account post this transaction, that really sharpens people's minds. Or even minds. credited. Credited. Because that's another skill of corporate financiers. <laughs> Quickness of the hand deceives <laughs> the eye. That's my accounting background, debit cash. Oh, I see. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Oh, well, I can never remember accounting. I've got some qualification, but I never know which side of the balance sheet's uh, which. But it reminds me of a, a meeting we had on, on Friday afternoon once. And at some point, a head of corporate financing plumped to a chap called Lord Rockley. God rest his soul. I think it's passed on now. And... Uh, Going back to old school corporate finance, we had this very thorny meeting of the risk committee, of which I was one of the triumvirate, on a Friday on something which was very unclear, and people around the table were disagreeing strongly over it, and this was going nowhere, and rarely I shut up at this point. And I remember Lord Rockley, who'd just come back from the um, Leadenhall Market, with some fish, actually, uh, in a bag, <laughs> right about one minute before the meeting, he's got this fish and put it on the table. And he was by, by now quite old and, and didn't move very fast. Uh, do we need to make a decision today, he said, to which Port Fans said no. At which point Rockley was out that door in a second. <laughs> and I thought at the time, being more of a sort of a young Turk then, I thought, oh, that's not very good, we're, we're ducking the decision. But actually, it's one of these things that you learn sort of wisdom over time about these things. Because actually, by the time we had the next meeting, which was several days later, the dynamics, the situation had evolved and the appropriate direction had emerged, again, kind of out of the mist, and the contention had kind of dropped away. So often, this is something I tell my children, not they ever listen to me on anything in particular, but often time, time will produce the solution. 100%. Good. Okay, so we've talked about lots of stuff, uh, old school uh, and new school. I'm fascinated to find the, the connections between the old school stuff. So very briefly, Aman, uh, before we hear a little bit more about rural park partners. How do you see the future of the corporate finance in fintech marketplace going, both in Europe but also globally? Will it just be all absorbed by Goldman Sachs tomorrow because it becomes <laughs> mega, or will more boutiques form in competition with you? No, look, ultimately what differentiates you, or dif what differentiates an advisor is, is longevity in terms of having the, uh, the history, the backlog, the experience to see and have seen every movie that there is so that when you see a clip of a different movie, you'll know exactly how to relate to your past experiences and how best to navigate a situation. That comes from being there for a very long time and being able to see everything that there is to see. Now, the big banks are inherently transient organizations. People cycle in and out of those organizations, as you said, spending the vast majority of the time sort of vying for power and position, et cetera. That is not what a, what a boutique's DNA is. It's, it's much more of an entrepreneurial mindset, much more aligned to the companies that we, that we work with. And I think as, as we look at the entrepreneurs, the VC funds, the PE funds that we work with, they now have started to, to oscillate away from the sort of the, the concept of working with a brand because I think they found that the brands have failed them over the last decade. Uh, one is just as bad as the other. 
and now they're, they're, they're much more discerning in terms of the quality of service that they're looking for and, and who is it that, that will individually look after them, their account. And so I think that there's going to be a big push to peop for people to have their advisor, their banker on a long-term basis working with them from their Series B funding round all the way through the letter of the alphabet and trade sale IP at the other end. Excellent. Well, I'm certainly glad that you're optimistic about the future of corporate finance boutiques because I'd have to lend you some of my intravenous Valium if you were pessimistic about it. Before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. My brand partners of the podcast, Smart, is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So that's been fascinating. Aman, you mentioned your part once or twice, but maybe you want to let the listeners know for the avoidance of doubt what kind of things you need to make you even bigger and better more famous than you are today. And maybe one thing, actually, I didn't touch on. Uh, I said we're on Russell Square, and you're called Royal Park. And I was sitting having a coffee at the Italian, quite pleasant, sitting outside in Russell Square this morning, wondering whether Russell Square had been a Royal Park. And I didn't think that it had. So why are you a Royal Park if it isn't a Royal Park? The important topics of fintech, of course, and <laughs> yeah, business. Of course. So the founding partners and myself, um, we, uh, uh, we met at, uh, uh, in Hyde Park, and decided that we wanted to call ourselves Hyde Park Partners initially, but realized that there was somebody else who was called Hyde Park. And then we defaulted to the next best option, which Hyde Park, which is a royal park, and decided to call ourselves Royal Park Partners. So that's, uh, that's, that's where our, our name comes from. In terms of a little bit about us, we are the preeminent advisory house in EMEA when it comes to fintech advisory in the corporate finance space. We advise companies in terms of full life cycle of uh, capital raising, M&A transactions, and, uh, and IPO. We always act in our clients' best interests and in the long-term interests of our clients, and wanting to see them succeed and dominate the market over multiple decades. Um, we have a presence and offices in, uh, in the US, Europe here in London, and uh, in Shanghai and Asia, which I mentioned earlier. We'd love to work with exciting fintech businesses across all different level, all different uh, points in their, uh, in their evolution and life cycle, and really uh, sit in the corner of our clients and pump them towards uh, ever greater goals and ever lofty achievements through, uh, through being able to provide uh, best-in-class corporate finance advisory services. And when you say EMEA, Europe, Middle East and Africa, I haven't really flown enough recently the last couple of years for some unaccountable reason, but the last time I flew, that was actually quite a big region. So in terms of doing all this relationshipy stuff, how do you manage to do relationshipy stuff and marketing and, and find new people to have a nice professional relationship with when you're looking at a sort of a, a billion square miles or something like that? Just as a practical question. No, true. So firstly, A, a lot of time on planes. Two, you're absolutely right, you have to focus in terms of geographically. And so, for example, when people think of Africa, obviously massive continent takes better part of around eight, nine hours to fly from one end to the other. People don't appreciate the, the vastness of the, uh, the continent. But Africa is really about three massive markets, Nigeria, Egypt, and South Africa. And if you can focus your attention there, then you've probably got the risk of offending people who are not based in those three markets, probably 75 to 80% of the, the fintech market of Africa covered by focusing on those three countries. Oh, excellent. Well, we had an episode recently on Eastern Europe venture capital market, which was um, slightly unfortunately timed, uh, given um, it's happened in <laughs> Ukraine recently, because Ukraine was a very big hub in fintech, and hopefully it will be again soon when it all calms down. But yes, we're st I still need to do one on Asia and perhaps on uh, Africa. And of course, Africa is well-known in fintech for being absolutely light years ahead with sort of, you know, payments and, uh, and all this kind of stuff. 
uh, while other parts of the world were sleeping, and, and China, China was definitely something to itself. Anyway, that's been a fascinating tour d'horizon. Uh, as I mentioned once or twice, I've been interested to find that, in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun, and traditions that were maintained for at least a century or two in terms of what's the best way to look after your client as a corporate financier are, even if they sound like they've been forgotten or they've gone out of fashion, they're liable to be reinvented because... <laughs> yeah. If I was a founder, what do I want? Well, I want, from a yin perspective, I want good relationships with my C-suite team. I want good relationships and good lawyers and accountants and corporate finance partners. And in terms of having interviewed now over 100 people about the board and stuff like that and capital raises and things, one of the things that I can see that accelerates the kind of convex curve of shooting up of, of companies is not just having money per se, it's invaluable in the same way that you've got lots of rocket fuel will help your rocket go further. But that m- metaphor I'm now terribly regretting because it ain't going to work. So we'll gloss over that uh, part of the metaphor. Um, but actually what helps you is being able to connect with ever better partners and people who are going to do the right thing by you. And one of the difficult things about doing the right thing is a bit like telling a buddy of yours that they're drinking too much or they shouldn't have so many affairs or something like that. So a good advisor will, of course... Uh, help you do what you think for the company, but he will also uh, suggest to, to you that actually maybe that isn't the best thing for your company. So hopefully we've given the listeners out there uh, who didn't know so much about corporate finance and corporate finance and fintech a bit of a feel for it. I think being an advisory business, more than anything else, there's way more art than you might imagine to the whole thing, which if only emphasises the um, importance of getting a good partner and any of you fintechers out there who are looking for a good partner. Royal Park may or may not be relevant to you, but based on what I've heard, they should definitely be on your long list, if not your short list. So thank you very much for that, Aman, and I wish you and Royal Park every success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas, via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city Where the tarmac's so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so great With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean?
Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me 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 Watch the firelight 